This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology Sydney for my sins. And my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Tonight we are joined, today we are joined by Stephen Davis. Now, I can say a lot of things about Stephen. Uh, He's got a very impressive CV. He's an investigative reporter. He's an editor. He's a producer. He's a teacher with a great pedigree. He's worked on the Sunday Times. That's the Sunday Times in the UK. He's been a war war and foreign correspondent, a TV producer for 60 Minutes and 2020, made docos for the BBC and the Discovery Channel, and taught journalism all over the place, including at Maclay College in Sydney and Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Peter. Was that sufficiently fulsome? That was pretty good. It made me seem very old, though. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, there you go. You're not. You're only 20. And he's only 21, I should say. Congratulations on the book, because what we're here to talk about is a book that Stephen has written. It's called Truth Teller. It's a very well written. It's compelling. It's sort of a travel log into the heart of darkness known as spin conspiracy theories, misinformation, and truth prevention. There's much to talk about, but first I'd like to ask about the title. You called the book Truth Teller. Uh, I'm just wondering whether Truth Seeker would have not been more like it, because how how often do you think journalists actually arrive at a thing called truth, at actual truth? For instance, how often have you got there in your career? That's a very good point, and uh, I say to people talking about investigative reporting, you just as often fail and, and as succeed, you just as often don't get the truth. I guess I called it truth teller as an aspiration rather than as a state of the current uh, uh, affairs. Mm. Yes, that's true. So I, I guess, I mean, we could spend the whole uh, next 30 minutes or more talking about truth, but just on that question of truth, I mean... On climate change, for instance, truth can be mean a different thing to, say, um, the ABC 7.30 report or 6 o'clock news, 7 o'clock news or what have you, and, say, Sky News After Dark. So we really are talking about facts, aren't we? I mean, journalists seek facts, and then they come up with the best version of what those facts mean. Uh, and that's a tough, tough job in itself, let alone trying to unload them with the word truth. Yeah, I've had some interesting discussions with university people about uh, truth and uh, uh, various professors who talk about relativity. And I just say to them, how would you feel if your students came in one day and said, we've discovered this wonderful thing, the world is actually flat? Mm. Um, There is truth, of course. And the reason I wrote the book 
was because I am disturbed at the level of misinformation and disinformation in the world, the speed which it travels around the world. I used to give my journalism students in London and in Australia a test every year. They had to research an online project. Mm -hmm. They had to come back with a story and clearly distinguish between what was fact and what was not, what they needed to attribute and what they didn't. And every year, and these are pretty smart kids, the numbers failing it went up. Mm. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that is that is one of the uh, most problem, problem, problematic parts of our times, isn't it? especially anyone involved in journalism, that people seem to value opinion uh, or sorry, the not value. It's more ma- making the distinction between opinion and fact is seemingly for a lot of people becoming harder and harder. Why is that? Uh, I think because people are overwhelmed with information. Mm. You know, it's true that um, fake news and 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 things have always been with us, uh, as you know, in mm. Victorian newspapers and papers in colonial America, they were more or less propaganda sheets. The difference is now is the volumes. Mm. Uh, and the difference is the ability, the sophisticated ability to lie and deceive using video or other things to mm. create a site that looks like a real news site. And to use various techniques, one of my big bugbears is conspiracy theories. People share them and adopt them because they think they're fun and in- in- interesting. Mm. Um, but I can tell you, having researched them, I think they're positively dangerous. And indeed, we saw an example of that recently in my own country um, with a troubled young man with access to guns believing nonsensical conspiracy theories about Muslims. Yeah, yeah. well, we're going to get to that. Um, you do talk a lot in the book about the human consequences of truth denial, and I, and I guess we're just talking about one there or referring to one there. But talk us through some of the consequences of truth denial. Because uh, at several points in your book, you, your stories reveal the absurdity, the outright absurdity of so many lies, and yet, as you say, lies travel faster and seemingly further than truth in this digital age. Um, there's a thing called the big lie, and um, I, I have to say Donald Trump, um, you may have many opinions about him, but he is to an extent a evil genius, and he's adopted a technique that's also adopted by autocrats. Mm. It's based on the fact that our minds tend to treat as trustworthy information that is familiar. So if we hear, inf- and this is a known fact, it's called the illusory truth effect. So if we hear information again and again, we're more likely to trust it. So the Trumps and the Putins know that you, if you tell a big lie, initially a lot of people might not believe you. If you repeat it again and again and again, and you have a feedback mechanism like Fox News, which quotes you and repeats it again and again and again, mm. the percentages of people believing it grow. Mm. Trump, after all, many people forget, made his name in the Republican Party with the Obama Bertha certificate Mm. conspiracy. Mm. Now, initially, when he mentioned that, most mainstream Republicans and most mainstream Republican voters just didn't believe it. By the time he had finished repeating it endlessly, it became a thing. The percentages believing it had grown, and of course, he had made his name. Mm. And what do you think of the media, uh, media's role in the amplification of Bertha, but also more recently, of course, now that Trump's president. It seems to me that the media, not just in the US here as well, have a choice, which is, you know, uh, traditionally you will repeat and report on what, say, the one of the most powerful people, if not the most powerful person in the world says. It's a newsworthy that Trump said it. But Trump, we've, with Trump, we've entered a whole new level of, uh, of, of um, 
complexity, really, haven't we? Because he tells so many lies. Yeah, I think, um, interesting about Trump, by the way, he tells lies even when he doesn't have to, which is uh, bizarre, you know, where his father was born. But look, I don't think the media has kept up with the speed and power of social media. It used to be enough to report something and attribute it and say in the next day's paper, okay, here are the reasons why it might not be true. But now when Trump tweets and media reports it, it's gone to 5 million people before you might read many hours later on the ABC or the mm. New York Times or the Sydney Morning Herald how he got it wrong. So we have to adapt ourselves. And, and, and quite frankly, we have to report this stuff at the same time as we point out reasons why it's not true. And Well, why can't we do that? There's just not enough of us? Or why are the bad guys winning? There are several reasons. First off, uh, the volumes are almost beyond comprehension. Somebody was uh, telling me the other day about a piece of research that every year 90% of the information in the whole of previous human history is created digitally. So it's it's just a vast volume. Um, and a lot of it is false. Uh, research at MIT and Stanford shows that falseheads, tr- falsehoods travel more quickly around the world mm-hmm. than the truth. Meanwhile, the gatekeepers, us, the journalists whose job was to interpret this thing, either we are under-resourced and there are not enough of us, or in many cases, quite sadly, we have simply fallen for the siren song of social media and it's cheaper and easier to sit in our office and report the fact that 27 million people looked at a picture of an egg than to actually get out and about and report things, talk Mm. to people and, and dig things up. It is a great, great example because it is remarkable that 27 million people looked at the at the ongoing cracking of an egg, right? I mean, it's remarkable. It's completely remarkable. And I've been lucky enough uh, after Truth Teller, the publisher has given me a contract for a new book, which focuses uh, completely intensively on social media. And I can tell you as an exclusive, the opening chapter is what was happening in the world while 27 million people were looking at a picture of an egg. And a lot of very significant things was happening, which got completely ignored. Well, that's another part of your book which I really enjoyed. Is is you make you make the point in in several different ways about the and this is even without reference in social media about the things that we don't report that are going on that are massive and important. For instance, events in the Congo. For instance, that you know how many people yeah. died there? Yeah, now? seventeen Six, million. It's an incredible just number. And yet it's so underreported. Uh, I, I run a test by the I, I today I spoke to students this morning and I will say how much how many of you know that there are appalling atrocities in the Congo and how many of you know that it's actually the worst atrocity anywhere since the Second World War and the answer is virtually none. Mm. Because it's it's it you know, it's difficult to get to, but there's there's also no real excuse for not covering it, I don't think. No, well, that's right. I mean, it's difficult to get. To, that's right. And so, what does that say? Is that journalism and editors, publishers, whatever, you're not doing their job? Well, first off, there's a resourcing issue, and that's clear. Mm. One of the chapters in the book deals with a. a, a I, I was pretty proud that I did what I think was the first major international investigation into the destruction of the rainforest. The Sunday Times of London sends me to Brazil. On a needle in a haystack, we knew that BP, who was the world's second largest oil company, had rebranded itself green. They changed their logo to green. They repainted their service station full courts in the UK green. And we were told they owned a mine somewhere in the Amazon rainforest, which was destroying the rainforest. Now, the Amazon rainforest, of course, is bigger than Western Europe. 
We didn't know where the mine was. We didn't know the name of the mining company. I was a senior reporter there and spent months investigating that and finally cracked it. I'm sad to say I don't think any news organization now, no matter how well funded, would mount that investigation. Mm. And here's what's worse. You remember when we heard about the rainforest and how important it was and the destruction of it was something we should all be concerned of. Haven't heard about it much recently. I've been back to that very area to my contacts, mm-hmm. and there were still vast quantities of the rainforest being destroyed. And the new, new Brazilian president, who basically makes Donald Trump look like a wimpy liberal, <laughs> um, is recently changing the laws to be pro mining and pro agricultural companies. So, so while we are, we don't have the power of journalists to do that story anymore, and we're so distracted that we virtually stop caring about it. And we're distracted, and we'd rather look at an egg. We'd rather look at an egg. Yeah, and, and I guess we'd always rather look at an egg, right? I mean, that's not that isn't again. That is like fake news itself. It's not new that people love to be distracted. It's just the tools that they have. Yeah, to, they know. love to be distracted, but um, the distraction now has reached too great a volume, and people are just almost unthinkingly now just sharing and passing information around. You know. Um, again, another study, another American study, a fairly good one. A lot of people don't read to the end of the tweet mm. before they retweet it. They can't even get to the bottom of the 140 40 characters. <laughs> uh, and on Facebook, people just share stuff because they like to share, and that apparently is what mm. Facebook is all about. And they, they are to that extent... They have to take responsibility. In in my new course, which I developed for the University of Otago and others, it's about taking responsibility for your consumption of information and sharing. You know, there's no point in saying, I didn't create the falsehood. If you pass it on to people, of course, it's like the getaway driver outside the bank. You are resp- partially responsible for the world. So how do you inspire people to do that? I mean, it's, it's good to say it, no argument, but how do you... If people are rewarded as, I mean, I'm sure you looked at this as well, the mechanism of reward, yeah. you know, that makes yeah. them feel good, makes them feel part of the debate, all these things. Uh, so if that's a mechanism, which is very strong and compelling and it works on all sorts of mm. other satisfactory sort of little nodes in our brain. So all those things you're up against, uh, how do we break that cycle? I mean, how do we have yeah. a bias towards truth? The desire for social media acceptance is immensely powerful. You're mm. right. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I deal with that in Truth Teller. I guess the answer to your question, I say to the students and others, imagine it on an individual level. Imagine your friend wants to know a good place to eat sushi in Surrey Hills. Mm-hmm. Would you deliberately send them to the worst place you know? Of course you wouldn't. That's not you being a citizen or a friend. But you are regularly doing the equivalent in spreading falsehoods which are read by other people online Mm. so i think when you bring it home to people at that level and when you start talking about ethics which young people do care about then you can get them to engage with the idea and the other thing i say to them horror of horrors share less Mm. share less think about it more Mm. study more maybe you share one interesting thing a day rather than 20 things which are trivial and some of which may be wrong Okay. We're in the midst of a federal election, as you know, and uh, the US is gearing up for a presidential election in 2020. Um, Do you think, given the nature of the debate since the 2016 US election, and the attention that misinformation, truth denial, 
fake news, even though I hate that term, has a, has a, a, a attained in that period. Do you think we are we as an industry and potentially as a society a better place to deal with? You know the the onslaught against truth in the in this election and you know in the U.S. and, and any other election, frankly. I think in the U.S. I think next time it will be different, that people have learned the lessons of the first time round. After all, one of the problems the first time round is people reported Trump but didn't take him seriously because literally nobody thought he was going to win. He wasn't treated as a serious um, candidate. I have to say in Australia, I, I speak as a Kiwi but with a big interest in Australian politics, so far I see little evidence that things have improved. I think you have a very clever and manipulative set of politicians who understand that they speak and get something out quickly and that's the version people will believe and then they don't see the correction later. Also, just an interesting observation, not related to my book, but as a New Zealander, I'm continually astounded by the level of abuse which Australian politicians direct at each other, which you simply wouldn't get in New Zealand. That's because you're nicer people. We are nicer people, I think, Peter. <laughs> well, well, tell us, uh, on that point, uh, tell us about your own journey a little bit. You were born in New Zealand, the home of many, many great journalists, I should add. Did you always want to be a journalist? I did. Uh, very strangely, I have a school report written when I was 10 years old, and it says Stephen wants to be a journalist, but oh. will need to improve his English. So I'm still working on the second bit, obviously. <laughs> Uh, and and I don't know why at 10 I wanted to be a journalist, but I, it, it was what I wanted to do. And I'm one of those lucky people who had a dream and it was what I was meant to do. I, I, um, I was obviously a very confident and determined young man because at some stage I told people on a paper I was working in in New Zealand that I was going to go and work for this great paper called the London Sunday Times and I was going to join their insight team. How old were you then? Um, and I was about 17 then. Yeah, well. And uh, the thing about it was laughable on several levels, not least because at the time the Sunday Times wasn't even being published nor was the Times of London, Appreciate. because they were owned by Thompson and there was this incredible nine-month-long printer's strike. Ah, yes, yes, I so I had this dream to give up my job, leave New Zealand and go to Britain to work for a paper which wasn't even out. <laughs> um, but eventually I made it, um, enjoyed it. I have to say of the many things I've done professionally, though, still the proudest thing by far was I was part of the a small group of journalists who set up a new national paper called The Independent on Sunday. Mm. I was the news editor. Uh, we sat in a hotel in London one summer with a blank piece of paper and a pencil, eight of us, and the following February we had a new national paper, and we were truly independent. Mm. We had no major shareholders. We had no press barons. We never took freebies. We had a travel section we paid for entirely by ourselves, if you could believe that. Very expensive business. And um, we were also unique in that we were the only UK paper that was um, uh, pro-Republic mm-hmm. and anti-Royalist. We, our Royal News was always a news in brief. Yes. Yes. No, I, I look, I remember uh, the, the Independent on Sunday, which then became the, the Cindy. Yes. Uh, now, does it sort No. It, no. no. It's, it's gone, Deceased. isn't it? Deceased. Yeah. Uh, what does that tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us of the, the power of predatory pricing. We had a three-section national paper, which we sold for a pound, and Murdoch cut the price of the Sunday Times, which had 11 sections in two magazines, to 50 pence yeah. in an attempt it. to put us out of business. 
Uh, well, it didn't exactly do that, did it? It kind of we limped on for quite a while, we limped. and then we limped. It ra- unfortunately was an advertising diet? recession, and uh, yes, strangely enough, the Standard and other papers yeah. have been bought by former KGB agent. I can't get my head around that at all. I have to say. Mm. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, it's probably a whole new show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the book, I, I, one thing I really enjoyed about your book is that there's a there's a level of frankness and honesty about our own trade, our mm. own profession. So you, uh, uh, you there's lots of stories uh, that relate to that. And one of them, you know, so you journalists can often be guilty of sort of self-deception. Uh, and one of, the make great, one of the great stories in the book involves a whale rescue that wasn't. Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, and um, it's a case of us getting carried away with something and wanting to make the public feel good, which, of course, happens a lot now. So I was in uh, Los Angeles, sunny Los Angeles. I get sent to uh, Barrow in northern Alaska, which is above the Arctic Circle, place in the middle of nowhere, because some whales have been trapped in the ice and a Greenpeace worker has alerted somebody else who's alerted somebody else who's contacted the media, and suddenly the whole world is interested in the fate of these whales. Mm. Oh, we school, love whale stories. Absolutely. Yeah. School kids all over the world, are they, of course, inevitably being named. School kids all over the world are doing drawings of them. Everybody's terribly excited by the story. The U.S. Navy got involved, the President of the United States, the Russian center icebreaker. <laughs> the whole of the world's press descended on Tiny Barrow, which was in interesting and one slight anecdote the place is dry and a lot of the British journalists were horrified by this and sent a reporter for the Daily Telegraph to Anchorage which is four flights away (laughs) to bring back scotch and beer while we were waiting for the story but as soon as I got there I talked to the local Inuit who were enjoying themselves making money being hired as guides and taking people out to the ice hole. Now, I have to say, to see the ice hole, I reached over and touched the whale. It was really quite powerful and emotional moment. But the Inuit said to me, we can't understand what the fuss is about. Every year, whales get trapped in the ice. And by the way, when they're dead, they're our food, and they're our heating, and they're our clothing. What's more, so anyway, the thing went on and on and on to a ridiculous degree, and suddenly, hurrah, the whales are rescued. They cut a hole out. World declares wonderful victory, children happy. The sad truth was, as the local Inuit pointed out, all that would have happened is the whales would have gone a few miles, got trapped in another ice hole, and died. And as I say in Truth Teller, the worst thing about it was as well, at the same time this was happening, three kids Mm. living in a socially deprived area of Barrow burned to death in a house fire Mm. because the Inuit, of course, live in terrible conditions Mm -hmm. there. That was the story. But, you know, people, I wrote for the Sunday Times a counter piece about this got roundly abused for it by the way I bet. but i'm afraid most of the world's media just went on with whales saved children happy and so forth and you know it seems harmless but it's not we can't we can't lie about that any more than we lie about politics or major social mm. issues mm. yeah it's a, it's a very very fair point and, and well done well good on you for making it you also make a point uh, you have a good go at uh, the documentary maker Michael Moore about his sort of repetition of what essentially was an untruth yeah. about the uh, the family of Bin Laden being given special treatment in the immediate immediate aftermath of nine eleven. 
Yeah, and I really emphasize this to students and people I talk to. We can't adopt the position if we think, you know, Trump is evil and the right wing is evil and we might be liberals, um, that it's okay if our side, you know, lies and cheats, but the end justifies the means. Mm. It doesn't. We're on the side of the angels. Absolutely. The propaganda is as bad coming from the left as it is from the right. And in Michael's Morgan, he completely invented a story which distorted people's view about what happened between the Bush family and the Bin Laden. So I'm a, that's every bit as unacceptable as Donald Trump lying. Mm, mm, yeah, I agree. You introduced, when you're editor of the New Zealand Herald, you introduced a column called what We Got It uh. Wrong, <laughs> which reminded me a little bit of I, I, when I was editor of the, uh, of the Sydney Morning Herald, I introduced a, uh, a reader's editor who could basically prosecute cases on behalf of the reader and tell them what was going on inside the newspaper. Uh, a bit like We Got It Wrong, that had a relatively short life. But yeah. Were what, your marketing and PR people horrified? Of Did they course, try and, to turn and, you and out the of journalists it? were very yeah, upset yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I'm sure We Got It Wrong was a uh, they would have hated it. Oh, they did. But I said, I think one of the key issues that we have, we, we have lost the trust of the public, okay? Mm. And, and and ways to get back to the trust pu- public is to practice good journalism, but also I believe if we, if we admit fallibility, like I describe in the book, if we admit we get things wrong and are open and unfr- upfront about it, unlike politicians who aren't open and upfront about mm. their mistakes, we will build trust, Mm. I think it was a plus. The day I left the Herald, the We Got It Wrong column vanished forever. <laughs> yeah, the day I left the Herald, the oh, Reader's well, Editor yeah, got the boot as well. Yeah. Oh, dear. No, let's not get all carried away no. with how lovely we are. Um, of all the deceivers you document in the book, can you single out uh, a couple of things for us? Um, I guess your favorite practitioner of the dark arts of misinformation and perhaps your most troubling incident. Um, my nomination would be the, the, the story about the fairy Estonia, but um, I'll leave it to you. It's your book. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll just get to Estonia in a minute. One, yep. one particular alarming thing about this is the ability of small groups of people to run massive deceptions which affect things worldwide. I had done two guest lectures at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, which is the oldest journalism mm. school, I think, in the world. And it always struck me as a very peaceful college town with not much crime i was shocked and horrified to discover that there was an outbreak of tremendous racial tension and aggravation on campus of the world's media descended to cover this it turns out that a picture had been posted of a young black boy badly beaten with a story saying he had badly been badly beaten on campus and with another story saying that kkk were coming to town to demonstrate and um, this caused a fuss, and people got on the streets and marched, and eventually there was racial aggravation. The picture was fake. Well, it, it had come from a real beating, but in the Philadelphia. There was never a KKK coming to town. And when I traced this individual, who was sitting in an office in St. Petersburg in Russia, mm. sending this thing up, the same person had been responsible for spreading disinformation on immigration before the Brexit vote. So just a few people were managed to achieve this immense power of disrupting our society. And they were doing it for money? Or no, doing it for they were doing it for as a state pot just just to create aggravation as a state sponsored thing. Well, I mean, to be honest, I know where they are and what they did. I I don't know where their paychecks come from. I'll no, have to but be they're being yeah, they're yeah. doing it to disrupt yeah. uh, Western democracy. Yeah, in a sense. absolutely. In so, so um, dysfunction. Yeah. But the Estonia is another one. Which you know why this story is not well reported in the West. Um, 
It's the worst shipping disaster in Europe since the Titanic. Over 900 people died, but very few of them were British and American. One Brit, no Americans, no Australians, no New Zealanders. 500 Swedes, Sweden's 9-11, a lot of Estonians. And um, the Swedish government, the Estonia sank in rather shallow waters. The Swedish government promised there would be nothing left undone to bring that ship to the surface Mm. and to investigate it. And it was technically very easy to do, slightly expensive but easy to do. Instead, they did the opposite. They buried it in concrete. And a contact of mine, an MI6 agent, a very reliable man, he called me up and said, Britain has signed this treaty governing the stretch of water where the ship is sunk. That's very odd that Britain should sign this treaty. Every other signatory is a Baltic nation. Anybody looking at the map can see Britain is not a Baltic nation. Why have Britain signed it? Mm. I put in all these Freedom of Information Act requests, got stonewalled. And the long and the short of it is the Estonia was used by British intelligence and Swedish intelligence to smuggle high-tech technology out of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where it became like a wild west. And lots of KGB agents were trying to make make their future safe by giving things to the West. Just re- remind the listeners, when was the, when did the Estonia uh, sink? Oh, that's, a, I think, 1994, 1994, It's an interesting exercise as well. And I mean, we think that we, you know, do a hard job in the West and we have legal constraints and so forth. But we must understand that for journalists in other places like Turkey, which locks up hundreds and other people it's positively dangerous i had a russian colleague who was working on the story with me in his own time and rang me up one day to say i've got death threats and i'm afraid i can't do it and of course i immediately said fine i later found out that a colleague of his in the newsroom who was investigating corruption of the russian state was got a call was told to go to a left luggage locker in the Moscow metro to pick up some secret papers. And you and I would have jumped at that chance. Off you go. Mm. Took the briefcase, brought it back to his office, sat it on his desk, opened it, and boom, Mm. dead, threw a bomb. So um, the Estonia showed me uh, that, um, you know, we have our problems in the West with journalism, but nothing like these poor people in these countries. Tell us just, we're running to a close now, but tell us as a journalist, how do you stop getting sucked in by conspiracy theories? Because conspiracy theories, some of them, as you've just sort of been relating, are exceedingly good. Yes, they are. Um, Although, if you look at it overall, there are now 22 conspiracy theories on 9-11, by the way. And if you read through them, they are all, of course, mutually contradictory. Of course. And and you and I know as journalists how impossible it is for human beings to keep a secret, never mind play this role all of these times. The answer is, first off, to to tell yourself they are not fun, to tell yourself they are not harmless because they are absolutely incredibly harmful. Peter, we have seen a conspiracy theory rocketing around the world this week after the Notre Dame fire mm. that uh, Muslims were celebrating the destruction of this Christian church with photographs and smiley faces allegedly posted by Muslims on uh, social media. This stuff is really dangerous. Um, I was asked by a Queensland radio host uh, who believes apparently that uh, Apollo 11 
moon landing was faked Mm. and i said okay just take me through this i was trying to keep calm and i said all right at the end i said all right apollo 11 i said what about apollo 12 14 15 16 and 17 of course man landed on the moon six different times except for 13 which got in trouble and the amazing thing is she didn't even realize that man had landed on the moon six times but lucky for me she went away thinking oh, i think i'll rethink my conspiracy theory. Oh, well there you go well done uh, we, a small triumph we did mention it earlier and i did say we'd go to it i mean I, ha- I have a question about what happened in christchurch the other week that very dark dark day if you were a editing the online edition of the New Zealand Herald, would you have run all, none, or some of the footage? Um, I would have run none of the footage, Mm -hmm. but what I would have done is dealt with the man's so-called manifesto. I think New Zealand has handled this pretty well. I don't particularly, as a journalist, need to use his name frequently. I certainly don't need, I don't think, to broadcast video of people because that's just the thin edge of the wedge, even for those who say we only got the shooter going in and we didn't say anything else. Mm. Um, But where I think New Zealand has made a mistake is they have, by the way, banned that manifesto. It's sitting on my desk at home as part of my research on Mm. my desktop. I'm now committing a crime facing a potential fine and jail sentence, and I have to register as a journalist to research this thing. And I think all you've done with that is you've made this a prize document for every loony white supremacist group in the world now. Here's the document that was banned in New well, Zealand. Feeds the conspiracy theory. Feeds the conspiracy yeah. theory, absolutely. But no, I wouldn't have run the video. Um, is it, can I make the suggestion, though, that yep. uh, is, is it no different, or is it any different than running footage, say, of... The, you know, the planes going into the ta- Twin Towers and 9-11. We know what happens next. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think there were, well, first off, the planes flying in, of course, that was a live event, so you didn't have the choice. In this case, after it was streamlined, the media had the choice, of course, about what they did and didn't use. Um, mm. I think, I mean, you could use the guy going into his car. You could use uh, maybe because it was interesting to a search, he suddenly mentions that Swedish comedian mm. um, and so forth. But I just think if you start, okay, we stop at the door. Do you stop at the door? Maybe next time, maybe we just show the first shooting. Mm. Maybe next time we show it all. I really think it's downhill. And when you and I were uh, editing papers and so forth, Peter, you know that if we ever used a picture, even slightly of a body, we would get hundreds of people complaining about it. Mm. It was considered a no-no. Absolutely. No, I think it's a very tricky one, that one, because uh, you think about the power of visual image. And now, granted, the difference, of course, is that, uh, well, certainly a lot of the greatest visual images in in our you know, in the history of journalism, were taken by photojournalists. Yes, absolutely. So you think of the picture of a nine-year-old girl, um, you know, in Vietnam, is running down the road naked. Now, but that's very powerful. And they have ch- they have the potential to change views, to change governments, mm. to change mm. government policies. Um, you know, again, the picture of that man in Christchurch put, going into his boot, pulling out the the gun with the names on it, walking towards the mosque. I mean, that is incredibly powerful very disturbing i grant but still very powerful uh, images 
Yeah, no, you make a fair point, and 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 one of my one of the most powerful images you mentioned the girl was the when Life magazine showed dead marines on mm. a beach, and it was the first time that had been shown, and they got a lot of grief for that. The counter argument is this is the reality of war. Yeah. So, die. yeah, I mean, I still, I think because so much other crazy stuff is happening out there, ooh, on the side of caution mm. in in dealing with this stuff. Okay. So um, thank you for your time. I should ask, what is the next book going to be called? you got a title? I have got a title. Do you want to share it with us? I will share it with you. Uh, it's called Indecent Exposure, How Out-of-Control Social Media and Viral Journalism is Damaging Society and Destroying Lives. Oh, my God. What a title. Yeah. That's, you're one of those narrative titles. Book. What a yeah. big book, that one. Indecent uh, Exposure, by the way, is the short form for this thing called the Illusory Truth Effect, yeah. which I discussed. Yeah. Okay. And Truth Teller is in all good bookshops as we speak? Yes. Truth Teller is in many Sydney good Sydney bookshops. And around the country, wherever yeah. we are, national yeah. and... Oh, of course. Yes. Absolutely. All over the yeah. place. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good bookshops. Even in Queensland. <laughs> Especially in Queensland. Uh, Stephen Davis, thank you so much for coming on Fourth Estate. Thanks, Peter. Um, we've been talking to Steve, Stephen Davis, who is an investigative reporter, editor, producer, teacher, and the author of the most excellent book, Truth Teller. I'd strongly recommend it. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk media and politics, journalism, of course, and a few things in between at your leisure. We'll be, we'll be back very soon. Uh, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. So thank you again to my producer, Anthony Dockerell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.